seventh book in your Bible. Just go to the beginning and thumb through them. We are starting now, after last week's introduction, to look at specific stories of judges. And some of you will know famous names like Gideon and Samson and Deborah and Barak. And today we are looking at a guy called Ehud, as you would have seen from the video. I'm not sure there's much more for me to do. video was pretty um, self-explanatory. There's a few more gory details which I might share. And the title today is The Left Field Leader. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, thank you that you are the Lord. You are alive and well, and that every knee would bow before you. And I pray today that every unbelief, every rebellion, every stubbornness, every bit of apathy in our hearts, Lord, we say it would bow the knee to the powerful, living, and life-giving Word of God. Soften our hearts, we ask. Humble us and make us hungry to hear your Word and receive it and mix it with faith. And all of God's people said, Amen. Right, so we're going to have a look at these judges. Today we hear about two who there's basically not much bad said of them. We're not focusing on them. But every other book in the book of Judges, every other judge, no matter how amazing they are, they are very deeply flawed and they are very deeply broken. And God can use them, but they are limited in what they can actually do. And we're going to start to see a a cycle now in the book of Judges. It's a very well-known cycle in the book of Judges where people are walking with God and they sin and they rebel from God, and then they go into oppression as God hands them over to their enemies. And after oppression, they moved to repentance as they eventually cry out to God and turn from their old ways and turn back to God. God hears the cry of their heart and he can't resist the cries of our hearts. It's the way his heart is wired. And then they go to deliverance where God raises up a leader to deliver them. They overcome the grapes or the Moabites in this case. And then they lead God's people and then there's a period of peace until that judge dies or something goes wrong and then the cycle starts again and you go sin, oppression, ah, repentance, deliverance, peace, death and the problem with all these judges is number one, they're not perfect and number two, they all die and come to an end and the cycle starts again. We see this in chapter 3 verse 7 to 8. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's a phrase that starts these cycles. They forgot the Lord their God because that's how Sin and rebellion starts. We forget God. And they worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. The Lord's anger burned against Israel and he sold them to King, that one of Aram somewhere. And the Israelites served him eight years. The names are important, but I don't think I can do them justice. Before we dive into the preach, just a little sub-explanation of the phrase and how we deal with the Lord got angry with them and sold them into slavery. Because um, you need to ask the questions like that of the Bible. Judges actually brings up quite a lot of questions like that. We won't address all of them, but we encourage you to read alongside this series. So what does it mean for the Lord to be angry with his people and to sell them into oppression or sell them to another king? Well, we can easily think that love and anger are opposites, can't we? I mean, we live in a world that says you just got to love and you can't get angry, you can't judge or you can't point the finger in every way. But I want to suggest that actually love necessitates some anger and the opposite of love actually is apathy or just nonchalance about what is going wrong or indifference. Anger and love are not opposites necessarily. Okay? Now there is a righteous anger and there's an unrighteous anger. So anger per se is a neutral thing and it can be a positive, good thing. Or it can be a negative thing. Tim Keller says this. People say, I believe in a God of 
love, not a God who gets angry. If you have a God who never gets angry, you have not got a God of love. Because if you never ever get angry about anything, you don't love anything. If you love and you see the thing that you love threatened, you get angry. If you're indifferent, you're not in love. True love always gets angry. Anger in its uncorrupted origin is just love moved to deal with a threat against someone you love. I'd get like this with my kids. So if something threatens my kids, I get angry. And why, why hasn't that person got the dog on the leash? You know, or, or, or even when it's my children's fault and they choose a path of action that is going to cause them pain, I get angry. I get angry at the thing. I get angry at the situation because I don't want to see them come to harm. Anger and love are not opposites. And so what we see here in one sense, the giving over of people to enemies is giving them ultimately what they want. And often this is how we taste something of the anger of God. We, we rebel against God and we say we don't want you. And God allows us to go down that path sometimes to see what life is really like without him. Now God is patient and from this day, even to this day, God <laughs> hears us when we cry and he comes back and he allows the people to go so that they would see their need for him and come back to him. That's always God's anger. He's always calling people to himself. Even with Pharaoh, you know the famous story, let my people go. Pharaoh refused. God went back again and again and again. Now he was doing other things, but his patience should lead us to Repentance is God's cry. If God restrained his mercy in the world, it would be far worse than it is. There is a vast grace common to all people that God extends in the world to restrain evil. And we are grateful for it. How many of you are more aware of God when life is tough than when life is easy? Most of us, aren't we? We hit a challenge. We hit financial difficulty, health difficulty, something we can't surmount, a health thing. We are more mindful and we are more likely to turn to God at that point than when life is rosy and it's nice and easy and we can just go about our leisure. That's why a lot of people who are persecuted and are far worse off than us have a deeper and more abiding joy and awareness of God because every moment of their lives they are having to depend on only one thing and that is God. Their difficulty has caused them to be close to God. For us, our challenges is our comforts and our options and our choices cause us to be negligent of God. So part of this, God selling them and giving them over. He is angry at sin, absolutely. He hates it. There's a, there's a righteous jealousy towards God, but he's a giving them over so that they might eventually cry out to him, which is what the Israelites eventually do. <laughs> After eight years, I mean, why did it take them eight years? How many of us kind of persist in our <laughs> rebellion and our sin and eventually come to realize oh, we need to do something about it? Eight years. But we see the cycle again. Judges chapter 3, verse 9. So Othniel dies. The Israelites cried out, sorry, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. So the Lord raised up Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, as a deliverer to save the Israelites. The Spirit of the Lord was on him. And he judged Israel. Othniel went out to battle and the Lord handed over King Cushareatham of Aram to him so that Othniel overpowered him. Then the land had peace for 40 years. But then Othniel 
died. So you have this cycle again of sin, rebellion, oppression, repentance. People cry out to God. That's the heart of repentance. It's a turning away. It's an active action, but it starts with a crying out to God and saying, God, I want you. God, I need you. And then there's deliverance, and then God raises up a leader. You see the cycle again and again. And he next raises up Ehud, a left field leader. So we pick the cycle up again, verse 12. The Israelites again (laughs) did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and he gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. The Israelites served Eglon of Moab 18 years this time. Last time was how many? Eight. Now it's 18 years. That's what sin does to you. The more you give in to sin, the more deceived you get, and the more used to it you get, and the deeper you go in. From 18 years, it took them 18 years to cry out to the Lord. And the Lord is merciful and gracious. And so he raises up Ehud, son of Gerah, a left-handed Benjamite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him with tribute for the king of Eglon. So just to fill out the story so we're not reading the whole morning. So what you have is this guy, we get told he makes an 18-inch um, knife and he straps it under his right thigh and he goes to the king with tribute. So the king, you know, getting tribute from his subjects. Uh, and then he goes on his way and then he turns around after a little while and he goes back and says to the king, Hey, king, I've got a secret for you. So King Eglon surprisingly says to everyone because his life would be under threat, Go, I want to hear the secret. I don't know what he thinks the secret is. We're told that the king is a rather large guy. He's a very fat man. And what happens is Ehud comes in and he grabs this knife and he plunges it into the belly of the king. And literally the king's feces come out. And so Ehud escapes. These are little necessary details because the reason the guards don't come in is because of the smell. And they think the king is relieving himself. And by the time they think, surely he's done now. He's read every newspaper there is and scrolled through all the sports pages and answered every text and checked every notification on Facebook. We must, yeah, there's only one person laughing in this room. (laughs) Surely he's done now. So they go in and they realize he's dead. And by that time, Ehud sounded the ram's horn and he's leading Israel to victory. Why all these details? The author is trying to make a very deliberate and a very specific point amongst the details. And I want to share three very brief points with you today. The first one is this. Your weakness is not a barrier to God. We've had references to lefties. Any lefties in the room? One, two, three, four. Oh, they're that They're all sitting on the left except for one. I wonder if that means anything. Are you a lefty at home? I'm not, but my wife is. But lefties, you have lots of challenges, don't you? Smudging when you're learning to write, yeah? Have you ever realized that when you hold your playing cards, you can't actually see the number because of the way you hold? Yeah, you've got it. I didn't realize that one. Um, I I don't know if this applies to, to ladies, but gentlemen, no one makes zippers for lefties, do they? You have to like... Have to go over the, over the flap to get to. I don't know if it's like that for the ladies as well. It's so harsh. If you're a lefty now, I've lost some of you. I can see the discussion. So, what does he mean on the. Um, hey, but there are benefits to being a lefty, are they not? You are more likely to be a genius. Woohoo! And have an IQ of whatever it is. You are more likely to be better at seeing underwater. Yeah, that's worthy of a woo. Yeah? So if you play Marco Polo, anyone played that? 
or like hide and seek in a swimming pool. We used to play in a green swimming pool at home, so you didn't need to close your eyes. But, you know, if you're playing Marco Polo under the water, get a lefty on your team. You're likely to win. Okay. Jokes aside, though, history has not been kind to left-handed people. It's been considered a weakness, and uh, it ranges from comical to cruel. The Latin word for left is sinister, which also means evil. The French word for left is gauche, or something like that, which means awkward, something on its root. Even the English word left comes from the old English word, which means weak. So why am I making this point? Is it just for a joke? No, the, the author deliberately highlights the fact that Ehud was left-handed. Now, in the Bible, references to right hand are all positive. There are pleasures evermore at God's right hand. The deliverer, Christ, is at the right hand of God. God swears by his right hand. At that time, the right hand was a symbol of power, and it was a symbol of ability, as most people were right-handed. It is highly likely that Ehud's right hand was either paralyzed or it was withered in some way, shape, or form. Otherwise, he probably would have learned to use it to conform to the time. Ehud was a surprising choice because in a society that was even more cruel than our own to people who were physically handicapped, he would have been considered an outcast and he would have been considered ineffective, let alone that he was the least from the least tribe. So the author's trying to make a point here that this guy's a nobody, that he's no threat to anyone, no one rates his chances very high, and yet he is God's choice. And you see this again and again and again in the Bible. People who are discounted become God's choice. Your weakness is not a barrier to God to do anything with you. In fact, when Christ came, he demonstrated that he is drawn to, almost unable to stop himself from being drawn to weakness and brokenness. In his great book, and I commend it to you, um, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, he says this, of all the gospel accounts, every chapter, 89 chapters, there is one place where Jesus explicitly reveals his heart, the essence of who he is. And he describes himself as gentle and lowly. So if you've come in and you're like, putting on a show, like super enthusiastic to encourage me, I'm grateful. But you can just relax. There's nothing needed for God. He is gentle and lowly, filled with compassion, and is drawn to pain and brokenness. The essence of Christ is that he is drawn to weakness, not repelled by it. Your weakness is not a barrier to God. It's not a barrier to God loving you, and it's not a barrier to God using you. What are the reasons that you give in your self-talk for discounting yourself in the things of God. Not wise enough, I'm not clever enough, I'm not old enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not eloquent enough, I'm not healthy enough. What are the reasons you give for discounting yourself in the things of God? You don't even have to be a Christian to, be, to think, I am not good enough for God. He is drawn to weakness. Your weakness is no barrier to him, God takes outsiders and uses those on the margins of society in order to show that the power and the strength is his and salvation is from him and not our own ability. Because we are so prone to self-dependence throughout history. God says, let me show you it's not about 
the most impressive, strongest, wisest. God uses them too. Hallelujah. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29. Paul says this. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Okay, I want you to consider it. How you came to God, what he's called, to, called you to in life. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing. What is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. And I would add, and so that if you feel weak and broken and have nothing to offer, God is for you and is calling out to you and can use you. Now he transforms you. And the reason that his weakness is no barrier is because it can become the very opportunity that God uses. That's God's way. When we remember we came left-handed into salvation, we were outsiders, weak, bringing nothing but sin to the table, yet God welcomed, accepted us, died for us, and now chooses to reside in us, not just some distant action that he did. He now chooses to reside in us. Why do we discount ourselves with the power of God to deal with less hurdles in our lives? If you have entrusted your salvation to God, everything else is detail. It's not that it doesn't hurt or it's not difficult. But in terms of the power of God, it's detail. You've entrusted Him the greatest, most impossible work. You can trust Him to do everything else. Your weakness is not a barrier to God. Similarly, point two, your weakness is actually an opportunity for God. It's not only is it's not a barrier, it is actually an opportunity to God. His left-handedness was the very thing that gave him an opportunity to take out the king. See the detail again in scripture. He strapped it under his right thigh. Why, why is that detail? Well, he probably would have had his left thigh searched before he came before the king, because that's where right-handeds would have kept their weapon. And the king would probably never have sent all his guards away unless he thought Ehud was no threat. He was a pathetic, useless person. What threat would he be to the king? He might just tell me a secret. His very left-handedness gave him the opportunity for what God had called him to. Some of you today know that God has called you to do something that centers on your greatest fears or on your greatest weaknesses or on your greatest reluctances. Isn't it amazing how God does that? He calls people to publicly speak who, I've been at best my life mediocre. That's the heights I've reached, mediocre. I used to win the sprint races, the B races. Yeah? I used to be in all the B races and I did okay. It was always the Bs or the Cs or the D races. God takes people at their very point of weakness and he uses them. Maybe it's speaking about your faith. You think, I'm too weak, I cannot do that. Maybe it's plucking up the courage to learn to confront because God is urging you to deal with certain things. Maybe it's disciplining your child and experiencing rejection or guilt because they will cry. Maybe it comes to generosity and money. Maybe it's moving somewhere. Maybe it's saying yes to something you've been asked. Maybe it's adoption. Maybe it's confessing sin. Maybe it's stopping that relationship because that hits you at the weakest point and you think if I do not have that, I have nothing. And yet God is calling you to do that. Your very sense of inadequacy 
is actually an opportunity for God. Because that is an area where you will be most dependent upon Him. When it's easy to obey God, that's a beautiful blessing. <laughs> we enjoy that. We don't mock that. But it's also very easy to kind of depend on God and kind of depend on ourselves. The very sense of inadequacy is an opportunity for God because it will mean you'll be entirely, utterly dependent on Him. We are quick to say someone else can do it. But in Ehud's case, because of his struggles, this lefty was the right man for the job. God can work all things together for good. You're never too young. You're never too shy. You're never too far gone in your sin or your rebellion for God to use you. In fact, it's a very area that he even now will be speaking into. Hey, and kids, those of you who are in the room, Jasper, Jasper's down here if you can't see. Hi, buddy. Rest of kids, you're never too young to come to Jesus. You're never too young to be used from. You don't have to be clever. You don't have to be wise. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be impressive. God can use you now where you are. And in fact, the very things that you find the hardest are the ways that he will shape you to use you. And that's not just for the kids. So number one, your weakness is not a barrier to God. Number two, your weakness is actually an opportunity for God. And then thirdly, it's all about God anyway. And we remember that Jesus came in weakness. And I use that in the context of what we're talking about here. Isaiah 53, verses 2 to 3. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No one would have paid any attention to Ehud. Little tribe from nowhere, back town place, left-handed guy. There was no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. When you read this verse, you think, wow, the story of Ehud, so much more to it than we could imagine. A man of suffering, he knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. The greatest left field leader, choosing weakness, coming as a servant, a vulnerable child, pursued to be eradicated, despised, rejected, acquainted with grief, able to understand and sympathize with our weaknesses, tempted just as we are. He came in weakness so that you could come to him with your weakness. Now, obviously, there was a strength and a power to Christ's coming. He was never a victim. He laid down his life. But he experienced in reality all the temptation that we feel and the extent of those. Childlike, dependent faith, looking into the gentle and lowly eyes of Jesus is what will sustain you and enable you to lead for him. And we're all called to be leaders in one shape or form. Lead in honoring God and obeying Him. Now the single greatest difference between Jesus and all these judges, well, there's numerous differences. One, obviously, Jesus ultimately was perfect, but He experienced our weaknesses. But the problem with those judges is that no matter how good they were, they always died. And we need a judge that will live forever, who will never compromise His integrity, who will never abdicate His responsibility, who is alive and rules and reigns forever. Revelation 1 verse 18, I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. I wonder if the band can come up as we come to an end. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am 
alive forever and ever. Number one, your weakness is not a barrier to God. Number two, your weakness is an opportunity for God. Number three, God gets your pain. He came in weakness and in vulnerability, if you like, that you and I might have hope and come to him with our weaknesses. We're going to finish by sharing communion together. If you're comfortable doing that, this is a way that Christians remember the coming of Jesus and his sacrifice. If you're not a Christian, please don't take of the bread and wine. But you are welcome right now in this moment to come before Jesus with everything that you have, especially your weaknesses. And ultimately acknowledge your weakness to do anything to give you hope beyond the grave or to deal with your sin. And if you, in this moment now, are trusting Jesus with all your heart, confessing your sin, calling out to him as Lord and Savior, you can do this in remembrance of him for the very first time. And if you're a Christian, as we come to communion now, we, Scripture explains communion in so many ways. It's a remembering of Jesus. It's a remembering of him coming. We break the bread, the wafer. It's a remembering of his body, his suffering, we drink of the blood. We remember his covenant promises that we're washed as white as snow. And as we do that, we are remembering that we were bought with a price. And scripture does warn us not to do this flippantly. It's not that we have to get hugely introspective. But if there is sin to confess, you need to confess that now. We just invite the Holy Spirit, if you're watching online or here, just invite the Holy Spirit. I, I don't want to put guilt on you. The Holy Spirit brings life. As you feel the light of God, you shine in your hearts now. As you invite the Spirit, there'll be things you need to cry out to God for and repent. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and soften our hearts and to speak to us now. you don't have to cover up your sin to try and be strong he knows anyway look into his eyes the gentle and lowly one just as you take the the bread and break it we remember your body Lord Jesus broken and we proclaim the coming day where there will be no more brokenness bodies will be restored in eternity with you. As we drink the wine, Lord Jesus, we remember the cleansing of our sins that you paid for with your very life. We remember that we are not our own, we are bought with a price. And we say we're all yours. Weaknesses and all. Forgive our sins. Jesus we cry out to you today afresh come into every living room and into every heart we are yours King Jesus cleanse us we pray we 
thank you. Your blood speaks a better word, a better word than anything spoken over our lives, than anything every weakness speaks into our lives. We thank you. We are now alive to God. I wonder if you'll stand with me. Please. Isaiah 53 verse 5. He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was pierced because of your rebellion, because of my rebellion. He was crushed because of your and my iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. I want to just reach out your hands. I want to just ask God to heal you today. You don't have to wait for me to ask. Heal your body. Heal your hearts. And heal your soul. Lord Jesus, we live in the goodness of all that you have won for us. And I ask you to heal bodies now. Shortness of breath. Be healed. Lungs be opened. And arteries be opened in Jesus' name. Pains and aches and arthritis in the name of Jesus. The healing that is in Christ. Let it come. Pray for clouded minds and depression. In the name of Jesus, be lifted. Pray for unbelief and stubbornness and rebellion. In the name of Jesus, be softened, be awakened, be opened. And for every heart and soul, in the name of Jesus, be made whole. We come to you, Jesus, and you say that as we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Let's worship together.